Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past week, we got a lot of viral videos of Tesla's new feature called Smart Summon, which basically enables the car to leave a parking spot and navigate around obstacles to pick up its owner. The problem is that it didn't go so well, and it led to some fender benders. For more on this story, we spoke to Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter at The Verge, for what went wrong. A bunch of videos were uploaded over the weekend of people using this new feature that said summon their vehicles to them. It doesn't have to be anyone behind the wheel. It doesn't have to be anyone in the car. And it doesn't seem like it was going so great for a number of people. There was a few close near collisions. One person said that they got some front bumper damage when their car collided with another car that was uh, reversing out of a parking spot. Somebody tweeted a photo of a Tesla Model 3 with a pretty damaged fender saying that their car ran into the side of their garage. These are all just sort of like a snapshot of some of the reactions that we've seen so far over the weekend, but clearly not the kind of stuff that Tesla probably wants out there in the public. I would imagine. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of videos. My, I think my favorite video so far is in a Walmart parking lot and the person is in line of sight. They're recording it and everything. And the maneuver isn't very difficult. You just got to pull out and kind of make a left turn and you're pretty much there to your owner. But the car has such a hard time and it keeps going forward and reversing and going forward and reversing. And then a truck comes to try to turn into that lane and kind of makes things a little more complicated. And you can see the frustration in the truck driver. And that's, to me, is kind of the funniest video of all of this, is that it is a very simple maneuver and the car still cannot handle it. It was pretty hilarious, too, watching the guy who was filming it. You could just hear his frustration uh, <laughs> behind, the, behind the phone, just being like, come on, man, come on, get over here. So there might be a few bugs in the system. I think one of the advantages of having a Tesla is that if Tesla sees that there's any sort of way that they can improve their software, that can get rolled out pretty quickly via their over-the-air software update capability. So we haven't heard back from Tesla as to what their reaction is to any of these videos, but it is possible that the company is sort of scrambling to come up with some sort of fix that might be rolled out to Tesla owners in the weeks ahead. This is another example of real-world complications that arise from Tesla's willingness to beta test these features using customers. Obviously, Tesla has been working on this for a long time and testing on their own, but it just rolls out in an update like this and it's on the customer to pretty much play around with it to see how well it would work in their everyday situation. And it does seem with some of these glitches that have been happening, maybe there wasn't enough testing done or maybe it needs to be developed more before you roll something out like this to customers. As a company, Tesla really has a lot of trust in their customers. It's really kind of amazing. I think you see a lot of other companies, especially car companies, try to anticipate all the worst things that people can do with their products and try to anticipate some of that stuff and make sure that there's enough protections and safeguards in their products to prevent some of those things from happening. Tesla, on the other hand, really prides itself on being at the forefront of the technology. And at the same time, they end up putting some of this tech in the hands of people, maybe when it's not quite ready yet. A lot of other car companies are putting a lot more technology into their cars, driving assisting programs, things like that. What is the future going to be as all of these cars are in different stages of their technology? 
I think it's really going to be not just complicated, but possibly even chaotic. I think what we're going to have, as we see more and more vehicles hit the road with a lot more of these sort of smart features, whether it's sort of enhanced cruise control style features like autopilot, like Tesla has with autopilot and a number of other car companies have as well, or some of these more gimmicky type features like smart summons, I think you're going to see something of a collision between those types of vehicles and the majority of vehicles which are on the road today, which you could categorize as dumb vehicles, I suppose, cars that don't have quite as many sensors and as much advanced software or any sort of artificial intelligence in them as some of these Teslas and other vehicles. So it's going to be a messy overlap because especially if this future comes to pass that a lot of experts and people involved in the technology have been insisting for years that eventually every car on the road will be a self-driving car, especially when we see how much safer they are and how much they do to help reduce the number of car collisions that take place and the number of fatal accidents and crashes. If that's the future that comes to pass, it's going to take a long time for us to sort of phase out all of these dumb cars and how the dumb cars interact with the smart cars, (laughs) I think. That's where the chaos is going to come from. Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Really interesting story we covered this week was the U.S. adventurer who recently became the first person to reach the deepest spots in the world. Called the Five Deeps Mission, Victor Vescovo, a Texas businessman, traveled solo to the deepest points of five oceans. The expedition discovered more than 40 new species, corrected underwater maps, and more. For more on the story, we spoke to Josh Dean. He's a contributor to Popular Science and joined Victor on one of his first missions. I mean, I would say this is probably the biggest adventure accomplishment left to be done on planet Earth, certainly. He had previously climbed the seven summits, so right. the seven highest mountains, and was looking for the next big thing. And he sort of thought the inverse of that, the lowest point in all five oceans, was really something that was begging to be done. Richard Branson talked about it a little while back. And two of the five had never been visited at all. And the deepest of all, the Challenger Deep out in the Pacific, had only been reached originally by the original explorers back in the 60s, and then only by James Cameron once since then. So even the deepest place on the planet had barely been touched. So, and there's a, there's a really good reason for that. It's just, it's very hard. And to do this whole thing, he had to commission the building of a new submersible. They called it the limiting factor. And over this, they covered more than 46,000 miles. They discovered maybe 40 plus new species of uh, underwater animal. They uh, were able to scan and create new underwater maps. I mean, this is a lot of stuff that was accomplished because of this crazy adventure that he wanted to get done. That's the thing. It's like often I think we think of these like rich, eccentric adventures as just like crossing something off the bucket list. This is a legitimate, important exploration for science and for sort of human knowledge, because the reality is the reason no one had done this is because there's no vehicle existed on the planet that could get to the bottom of the ocean repeatedly. Submarines are designed primarily for the military and they don't go deeper than like a thousand feet. We're talking about 35,000 feet in the case of Challenger Deep. Really expensive, really hard to build a submarine that goes that deep and you kind of need a rich guy who's willing to pay for it. Josh, you were there when Victor went down in his first trip in the submersible. Tell us what that was like and then tell us everything that had to go into really uh, constructing this thing. So his submarine is called the Limiting Factor. It's the only submersible on the planet capable of going below 7,000 
6,000 meters. Now, there are a few that can go as deep as 6,000. Every one of those is owned by a national government or a military and not available for private use. So I was on board back in December when Victor took the limiting factor to the bottom of the Puerto Rico Trench, which is the deepest point in the Atlantic Ocean. It had been tested down to a few thousand meters, but nothing remotely close to where he needed to go. So this was like a sort of test. It was going to go to 8,300 meters on its very first attempt at a deep. So he basically, it was like taking a prototype machine out into the, the world, like a spacecraft, for instance, right. and just hoping that it's going to work the first time. And, and days before he even yeah, went down, uh, there was like a leak in it. Uh, there was kind of a robotic arm that was supposed to be used to grab samples and things like that. That thing was broken. But, you know, a few days after trying to fix that, he said, hey, I'm OK. Let's still test this thing, because if weather doesn't permit, you know, you might have to wait an entire year to get this done again. He'd set a pretty ambitious timeline. He wanted to do all five in under a year. And to do that, you had to hit the specific oceans at specific times because the sea state needs to be in a certain point because the surface operations, the ship part is actually pretty complicated. Actually, the most dangerous and the most complicated part, people don't understand this, of launching a submersible, which is a small submarine that requires a mothership, essentially, is getting it in and out of the water and getting the human into it. Because if the sea is at all rough, it's very difficult and dangerous to launch the submarine with a person in it. So basically, he got to hit these places at a specific time. And like you said, there were problems right up until the day he went for the dive. Yeah, the hatch leaked, the robotic arm fell off. But the company that built it, this small operation out of Florida called Triton Submarines, and they're the best at making these little tiny submarines that can go deep. The guys who built it were on board the ship. So they were able to do the repairs in real time, like staying up through the night and working on it. And Victor was confident by the time he went for that dive that he was going to make it to the bottom of the Puerto Rico deep. And he did. It was very dramatic because it was like the last day in that window wow. that he could even attempt it. It ended up taking 26 months and about $30 million to construct this submersible. And now he's hit all five deepest parts of the ocean. We mentioned how mapping the bottom of the ocean was a big part of this because nobody really gets down there to do it. What are some of the biggest takeaways of this whole adventure that Victor Vescovo went on? There's so many. I mean, he hopes that this is like as much as anything is like the beginning of a new era of deep sea exploration. So he's commissioned and paid for this submarine. He plans to make some more dives out in Challenger Deep, for instance. But he hopes that he was like reminding us that the bottom of the ocean is very little understood. I mean, we know so much more about space, frankly, than we do about the very bottoms of our ocean, the areas below 6,000 meters, where we don't have any vehicles that can get there. There's not a lot of life, but Depressingly, he was finding plastic at 35,000 feet under the ocean. I thought like, that was very said, interesting, yeah. Yeah, so like our impact is felt at every inch of this planet. And I, and I think that increased understanding and mapping the bottoms of the ocean, also sea life, the organisms that the science director on the mission is a specialist in these so-called hadal zones, which are below 7,000 meters, which are almost no one knows anything about what lives down there. And not much does, but there is life down there. And I think like Victor sees this as hopefully a starting point, not just like, hey, I've done it. No one else needs to worry about it. He hopes more people go down there. Josh Dean, author and journalist, contributor to Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Finally, for this week, foul balls are hurting hundreds of people at Major League Baseball parks, leading to a discussion of whether more netting should be placed to protect people from errant baseballs. The Phillies are the latest team to say that they will be expanding safety netting before the next season starts. For more on this story, we spoke to Vicki Wynn. She's an investigative and consumer correspondent at NBC News who did an investigation into how many foul balls are injuring people. When we reached out to Major League Baseball and then we reached out to all 30 teams to find out 
A, do you keep stats on this? B, will you share them and be transparent? MLB didn't provide any numbers, even though they say they did a study a few years ago about this, and none of the teams would provide numbers. So we turned to their first aid stations, the the agencies that contract to respond to these incidents in the stands, and that's how we were able to cobble together some definitive numbers. And keep in mind, the 808 incidents that we found since 2012, that's about 100 injuries to fans um, by balls, most of them foul balls, that leave the field and go into the stands. Some of these are even home runs. And when we read through the incident reports, we learned that this wasn't always someone who wasn't paying attention. Sometimes these are fans that are ready for the ball, waiting for the ball, trying to catch the ball, and still get hurt. So that's more than 100 fans injured by balls that leave the stands. And that's based on the first aid stations of just four teams since 2012 and 2014. It was a big enough number that we were able to take that back to Major League Baseball insiders. We talked to the um, vice president of sales and marketing for the White Sox. They're the first team to extend the netting all the way to the foul poles. We also heard from a um, retired Major League player from the Pittsburgh Pirates, Garrett Jones, who had a really unique perspective. Not only has he hit a foul ball that has gone into the stands and injured a little boy and an elderly woman, he was able to go on record for the first time and say, hey, I think Major League Baseball needs to step up to the plate and extend the netting because as a player, it is a horrible feeling when your ball goes into the stands and hurts someone. So he thinks the time has come. The game has changed. It's more dangerous for fans, and this is something that warrants a second look. Yeah, I mean, it definitely affects the players. Earlier this year, the Cubs player, Albert Almora Jr., hit a little girl in the face of the ball. That one they said was about 90 miles an hour, and he dropped to his knees and cried because he knew it could be potentially life-threatening at that point if you're getting hit in the face. So you can see the emotion there, and it's important to mention, you said that you guys got some of these numbers from just four teams that, you know, those emergency responders. I mean, that leads us to believe that the numbers could be a lot higher all over the place once you kind of really get numbers from all the teams. those numbers out, it would be a lot higher. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to do this based on actual concrete data. But if you think about it, that's just four out of 30 major league teams. You're looking at already 800 reports of injuries there. So the real number could be much higher. We don't know if Major League Baseball knows, but it certainly is data that is worth knowing. And that's why we felt it was really important to stick with those concrete numbers and put this out there for fans. Batters are hitting more foul balls in 2019 than in any of the previous 20 years. And you think about solutions. It's almost impossible for anybody to pay attention for 100% of the game. There's a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Obviously, smartphones is probably a huge thing. People are looking at their phones a lot. But even just sitting in the stands, you know, you, there's stats constantly going on the jumbotrons, replays. There's a lot of stuff that is happening. People selling hot dogs and whatnot and peanuts. So extending the netting, something uh, a simple could potentially save people from a lot of pain and, and injury. So far, a total of 13 teams have announced to extend the netting. 17 teams have mm-hmm. not announced any plans yet. Do we know what is the hesitance on their part to do this? Yeah, so 13 teams announced that they will. 16 have already done so. As you mentioned at the top of this, the Phillies told us exclusively after we started asking questions, they do plan to extend the netting to the foul poles by the start of the 2020 season. Interestingly, when the Philadelphia Inquirer followed up on it today, um, the Phillies said that they weren't sure where they were going to extend the netting to. So we're going to be watching that carefully. The reluctance, I think, Oscar, has to do with a couple of things. We asked about the cost. 
But at the end of the day, it doesn't boil down to cost because, you know, putting some nets up on, yeah. on foul poles is, is not a it's big deal. It's got to be negligible for sure. Exactly. In their budgets, right? It's really concerns over the fan experience and the fan response. Some fans have said that they miss the interaction with the players. Um, and, you know, part of the experience, too, is, hey, maybe I'm going to go home with a game ball today. You yeah, know, like maybe right. there's going to be yeah. a ball that gets hit into the stands that I catch and it'll be the memory for me, for my family, for my child, what have you. However, when we walked at least the Chicago White Sox um, ballpark, the the VP showed us how, you know, uh, the players can still throw balls up underneath the net. They can throw balls over the net. They can sign balls through the net. They're still able to talk to the fans. I mean, we're not talking about a chain link fence or some really thick mesh netting. When I was sitting on the field, I'll say I could see the game pretty clearly. But today in social media responses, we heard from some Washington Nationals fans who say that they feel the Nets have ruined their experience and their vision of the game. At the end of the day, I think it comes down to do you, would you rather go to the game and feel like you can enjoy it, look away from the action and be protected, or are you willing to take that risk? Are you willing to put your child at risk um, in that setting in order to catch a foul ball? And I right. think that's the question teams are grappling with and reassessing and trying to figure out how much they want to give fans the freedom to make that choice versus how much they want to just say, hey, listen, we know the foul balls go to these foul poles. That's <laughs> That's why we have that demarcation. Maybe it's time to put nets up, especially now that we see the number of foul balls and balls leaving the field is going up. And we've heard a lot of stories about teams and even players themselves going above and beyond to help out some of these people that they have hit. But the teams mm -hmm. in the MLB is protected pretty ironclad. You know, they have the so-called baseball rule and in the back of every ticket. There's the disclaimer right. that says you as a ticket holder assume all the risks, danger and injury incidental to the game of baseball. So they're covered regardless. So, uh, you know, that's just kind of another factor with all of this. Absolutely. And, you know, that's part of the question. I think some of those marketing offices are weighing with the owners of the teams while they have this disclaimer and legally they're not on the hook. How do they feel when that that fan of theirs gets injured in the stands and it makes headlines? Is it worth worth that trade off? Um, and you're right. It, it's something that they have to weigh as teams. Uh, and, you know, we're looking forward to following it and finding out if more teams now that these numbers are out and now that we've kind of broken ground with this report, maybe that's the tipping point. Or maybe they're just going to, you know, stick to tradition and keep things the way that they are. I think what is important is that fans can look at this information, see it in black and white, and make an educated decision about what risks they're willing to tolerate when they go to a game. Look, we recognize millions of people go to ball games. Every year, have a great time. They come nowhere near a ball. Um, but it's an important discussion, I think, to be having. And when I was at Coors Field, uh, when we were shooting part of this story, there's a lot of kids that come to the game. And I'm not sure that it's fair to expect kids who are running around there eating popcorn and Cracker Jack to be paying attention to the game at all times. Um, and so, you know, you got to think about the liability that comes with having families come to watch America's pastime. Vicki Wynn, investigative and consumer correspondent for NBC News. You can catch a lot more of her stuff at Today and the Nightly News. Thank you very much for joining us, Vicki. Thank you so much for having me, Oscar. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.